Well, hey there, podcast listener. How are you today? Like, really? Because if I could be honest, you're looking a little stressed out. And that's okay, because I've got your back. Because if you are feeling stressed out with life and work, left to feel unfulfilled, stuck, and ready for a new chapter to begin, well, I'm inviting you to change that. Because I want you to sit down with me and let's figure out a plan together, your life's roadmap, taking you from where you are right now and getting you to where you want to be. All you have to do is head on over to workwithkevin.coach. That is workwithkevin.coach to sign up. Until then, enjoy today's episode. Like that was one of the things in, in SEAL training that I think got to most people. They couldn't conceptualize this thing that you're doing right now is going to end. Mm. It's fine. It's only going to last for so long. And so I, you know, I do some, some speaking from stage and I talk about never quit and I talk about creating small victories, you know, and I use Hell Week as an example. Like it doesn't matter how much it sucks. They feed you four times a day. So you just go and go and go. You know that this thing is going to end. This evolution is going to end and they're going to take you to chow. They're going to feed you. Welcome to The Lowdown with Kevin Lowe, the podcast shining light on the inspiring stories of ordinary people choosing to live out anything but ordinary lives, all in the hope that you will be inspired to live out your best life. Because this life, it's meant to be lived, and this podcast is meant to inspire you to do it. What's going on? Welcome to the podcast. My name is Kevin Lowe, host of The Lowdown with Kevin Lowe, and today you are joining me for episode number 109. Now, if you're new around here, well, I will let you know that this is a Wednesday episode of the podcast, so that means that I'm joined in the studio by a guest, unlike Friday episodes where it's just me. So today, I'm joined in the studio by a guy who definitely has a presence about him. His name is William Branham. William spent 26 years serving this country as a Navy SEAL. That's right, folks. We are not messing around today in the studio. We've got a guy here who is going to totally inspire you, empower you, encourage you to never give up on life. That quitting is never an option. That you can't say no. You can't say I can't because you can't quit. You've got dreams that need to become reality. And this guy is here to inspire you that you can literally do more than you even think you can because this guy did it. He's been through hell and back. Literally. Matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken, I believe he told me that he's been through hell three times and made it out the other side. That, of course, being hell week, the training to become a Navy SEAL. You're going to get to hear about his experience going through hell three times and all the other details about becoming a Navy SEAL. After, though, serving our country, he would eventually retire and now be in this chapter of life where he is today, the founder of Naked Warrior Recovery. Naked Warrior Recovery is a CBD company that he started after 
having his own issues following retirement, things like not being able to sleep, stress, all these different things. And he started taking CBD products and realized, wow, this stuff really works. And lo and behold, he would end up creating his own CBD company called Naked Warrior Recovery. You're going to get to hear all about that and more. But most importantly, you're going to leave empowered, inspired, motivated that this life, it's worth living, even if that means you got to fight for it. Sometimes you got to get down and dirty. You got to do the work. You got to put in the reps. But at the end of the day, that's what it's about. It's about making your dreams reality and living this life simply based on the fact that it's your life to live. If so inspired by today's podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you are listening. It helps other people find the show. And well, it's a neat way for me to even realize, hey, people are actually liking the content that I'm putting out. So if you finish today's episode and are so inclined, please be sure to leave us a nice five-star rating and a review. It would mean the world to me. Now, here is my interview with William Brown. I sort of knew that I wanted to be in the military, but I didn't really know what that meant. There was a, a naval air station in my town. There was a Army National Guard or Air National Guard actually in my town. So I saw lots of people wearing camouflage. You know, baseball coaches wore camouflage. They worked at the base in the Air Guard. I didn't really know what it meant, but I thought camouflage was cool. I grew up hunting and fishing and, you know, doing stuff like that. So I was involved in the outdoors. I was in the Cub Scouts and the Boy Scouts. And so I was already used to wearing a uniform. It was comfortable to me. And I knew that I always wanted to be part of something that was a little more elite than me because I was just a mediocre kid from, you know, Collinsville, Mississippi. There's not a whole lot going on there in Collinsville. So I knew I wanted to be more than whatever I was at the time. I just didn't know really what that was. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, did you have any family who, who had served in the military? Yeah, I like all the men in my family have been in the military, have been in the mostly in the Navy. There were a couple of members that were in the Army, and I pretty much swore that I would never join the Navy <laughs> if my life depended on it. And why, why is that? That didn't quite work out as, as planned. <laughs> yes. Well, like I said, there was a like a naval air station right there in right there near where I lived. I saw these young sailors that were, you know, they just graduated boot camp. They were going to like their technical school to learn how to do whatever before they went off to to be in the Navy, like the real Navy. And, you know, for the most part, they were just young kids right out of like out of high school for the most part. And, you know, they were free for the first time, really, from since boot camp. And so they kind of acted like a bunch of idiots. <laughs> and so that was sort of my perspective of the Navy. Yeah. And they had the ugliest uniforms. <laughs> and, you know, the Navy, they they float around on these big gray things out there in the ocean. And I had zero desire to do anything like that. Yeah. So, I mean, the Marine Corps, they wore camouflage. They had really cool looking like dress uniforms. <laughs> they shot guns like that was way cooler than like being in the Navy. So uh, I didn't know what that thing was that I wanted to do in the military, maybe Army Ranger, maybe like a Green Beret, because John Wayne was a Green Beret and in, <laughs> in, in the movie Green Berets in Vietnam. Yep. 
So that was something that I was thinking about. I always knew I wanted to be part of a small kind of elite unit. But again, I still didn't really even know what that was. Or I wanted to be a ninja. Yeah. Oh. Because I watched Kung Fu Theater growing up. Yeah. I think all of us boys growing up wanted to be ninjas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that, that's awesome. So so how did you then end up coming to become a Navy SEAL? Again, I did not want to join the Navy, but I and I was, you know, I, I was super poor growing up. We didn't have much. But again, I was involved in the Boy Scouts. And I was an Eagle Scout. And, you know, right before I became an Eagle Scout, I went to what they call the National Jamboree. And it's a giant like it. they hold it every four years. It was at Fort AP Hill, Virginia, which is a place where I later went back and did a bunch of training in the SEAL teams. But it was a let me think about this. I went to this National Jamboree, which the Boy Scout troop that I belong to the or the organization, the chapter, I guess, actually paid for me to go to the National Jamboree because I was so involved in the Boy Scouts and they w- they wanted to send someone, you know, and, and help someone who was a little less fortunate. And so I got to go and then I met someone. It was two different troops. So a troop from Mississippi and a troop from Alabama that went. And there was a, the troop from Alabama. There was this other kid. He was really good at swimming and, you know, other stuff. And he said, you know what, when I grow up, I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And I'm going to fly F-14 Tomcats like the movie Top Gun. <laughs> and I was like, that's cool. I want to fly F-14 Tomcats too. What's a Navy SEAL? And he just explained to me that it's the, uh, you know, the hardest military training in the world, the most elite military unit, la, 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 all this other stuff. And they work in small teams and they jump out of airplanes and blow stuff up and scuba dive and shoot guns. And and I'm like, that is what I want to do. I want to <laughs> be part of the the most elite military unit in the world. They just happen to be in the Navy. And so I... So I came back from that that trip like a week later, the Navy recruiter calls my house and says, hey, have you ever thought about joining the Navy? And I was <laughs> like, well, <laughs> I want to be a Navy SEAL and I want to fly F-14 Tomcats. He's like, check, come on down and let's have a conversation. <laughs> so had that National Jamboree ever not ever happened, then my answer would have been a hard no. Yes. Because I didn't know what a Navy SEAL was you know, potentially I would have learned along the way and maybe tried to go that route. But yeah, I didn't want to be in the Navy because again, they float, they ride on these big gray <laughs> things that float around in the ocean. And uh, yeah. That's hysterical, hysterical. And I mean, don't you just love the way life has this crazy irony about it that right after you get home, you get the call from a, a recruiter from the Navy, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and I never really thought about it quite like that. I was like, how, what? Yeah. <laughs> I, I just thought it was like, was he listening to my conversations or something? Yes, yes. So yeah, that was, it was interesting how it all kind of worked out like that as if it were meant to be. Absolutely. So now in order to become a Navy SEAL, do you first have to be one of those guys in the dorky uniforms floating around on the big gray things? The short answer is yes. <laughs> and sometimes yes. And sometimes you do have to wear the, the dorky okay. uniform. Okay. Everyone okay. goes to the same boot camp in the Navy. And then from there, it, it's a little different now. But when I went through, I joined the Navy. I went to boot camp. I actually joined the Navy before I graduated, before I even started my senior year of high school. Oh, wow. In what's called the delayed entry program. Okay. And so, I, I mean, I was, I had a contract to go to boot camp in 10 months or 11 months or whatever it was. And so then I graduated 
went off to boot camp like three weeks later, four weeks later, something like that. And, you know, I took the, the seal screening test. I actually failed it the first time I took it. I actually failed it the second time I took it also. But uh, so I joined the Navy and in the Navy, they required at the time, they required you to have a Navy job because the way that you advance in the Navy is through the, the job that you have, the rate, the occupation that you have in, in the Navy. So, for example, I was a gunner's mate and my job was to work on these big gun systems. I thought gunner's mate had to do with small arms guns. It doesn't have really anything at all to do with small arms. It has to do with these big gun and missile launching systems on Navy ships. So, so they, they focus heavily on electronics, pneumatics, and hydraulics. Okay. And then the specifics for individual missile launchers or gun systems. And so that's how you advance. You take tests that have to do with those systems or basic electronics and pneumatics and, and hydraulics. And then, you know, other things are like basic Navy military bearing and things like that, that are how you advance in the Navy. Okay. So I had to go to this school for six months and after boot camp. And so I walked around, you know, I was one of those guys that I didn't like when I was at <laughs> home, straight out of boot camp, walking around the malls and stuff and in, in my uniform, looking dorky and, <laughs> and being an idiot. So, and so we came to the end of that that school and I was high enough in the class. I was like, well, I haven't taken the screening test again to go to buds. So I'll take this other school to get in better shape for four more months. And then I'll, you know, take the screening test and, and go to buds. Well, what I didn't know is I took this other school for four more months. I had 24 months of obligated service to the Navy on one of those big, great things that are floating around out, out there in the ocean. So that was, you know, a little bit depressing, but I went and I did my time. I eventually passed the screening test. And then it came time to, for me to go to my next commander or called the guy who's in charge of sending you to your next command. And I called the guy up and I said, Hey, I'm putting a package in. I want to become a seal. So I'm just letting you know. And he was like, that's great, but I'm not going to let you go become a seal because that school that you went to for, you know, four more months after your, your initial school, you are too critical to the Navy. You're too critical to me. You're too critical to the Navy. So I'm not going to let you go. Even though Buds has a super high attrition rate, he was like, nope, you're, you're not going. And so I went and got letters of recommendation. I got, you know, did all, all the medical, all the physical, all the everything. Everything is ready to go. I'm talking to the SEAL detailers and they're like, sorry, bro, we can't help you until your detailer says you can go to Buds. Uh... And so everyone is telling me no. And uh, eventually I'm about maybe six weeks out from, you know, the, my orders being up, not really knowing what I'm going to do next. And the chief of naval operations comes to my ship in Yokosuka, Japan. And to give it a little bit of a little bit of an idea of who the chief of naval operations is, he is the most senior guy in the Navy. The only people who are more senior to him is the secretary of defense and the president of the United States. Most senior guy out there at the end. And he came to my ship. There's, you know, 15 or so ships in Japan, but he only came to my ship. He didn't go to any other ship and he, you know, had CNOs call and it's like, Hey, this is my vision of the Navy, blah, blah. I have no idea what he said. Cause all I wanted to do was ask him if he'll let me go to buds. Yes. And so he finished his thing and he's like, Hey, okay. Does anyone have any questions? And I raised my hand. He calls on me and he says, is he, and he says, yes, sir. And I said, I joined the Navy to become a Navy SEAL. I think I deserve a chance to go. My detailer won't let me go. Will you let me go? And he turns <laughs> to my commanding officer. And he says, is he a good guy? 
And my CEO says, yes, he was the sailor of the quarter this quarter, which is like employee of the month. He turns back to me and he says, okay, you'll be in the first class after your time on the ship is up. And six weeks later, I'm off to California to SEAL training. Wow. So that was a very long answer <laughs> to a very short question. We don't, we don't all have to do what I did. Yes. But, you know, back then, everyone still had to go to their, you know, their Navy ranked school. And then from there, they could go to, to SEAL training. Now you can go to boot camp. Then you can go to what's like kind of a prep course and then go go to buds. Okay. Okay. Wow. Well, well, do you feel in, in, in looking back on things now, do you believe, though, that going ahead and, and not going straight into SEALs was a benefit in any way? I definitely have different experiences than other people. And so I, I look at that as a benefit. Okay. Yes. You know, I wasn't happy about it, but I, again, I still got to see parts of the world that I never would have gotten to see. I've, I was able to experience things that I never got to experience, you know, not all good. You know, I, yes. I considered mess cranking, which is like KP duty okay. to be harder than seal training. Yeah. If you, if you ask me, I mean, it was three months of like working in the galley and serving food and doing like, yes. and, and that was, that was terrible. That was miserable. Yes. But you know, some people are, are okay with it. I was not. And then, you know, when I was like suffering there on the beaches, like trying to keep up on runs in buds, you know, the instructors would be behind us and they would, you know, be saying they would say, look to your right at that big gray thing out there in the water. Some of you belong on that ship. And I'm like, not me. I've been there. I'm never going back again. Not on your life. So yes. it was uh, it was definitely an interesting I got to experience it and I'm glad I will never have to do it again. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now talk to me about actual SEAL training because okay. how, how long is the entire SEAL training? You know, I have to, I look at where, what I went through and then the way it is today, but basic underwater demolition SEAL training is six months long. Okay. From like best case scenario, beginning to end. And okay. then there's other training that follows that. But the kind of that that weeding out period really is the first six months. And really, it's like the first eight weeks or so is the like most of the weeding out. So and so it's six months long and it took me a short 13 months to get through that six month block of training. OK, I got injured a few times and, you know, uh, yeah, so it was I wasn't happy about it, but it, <laughs> I eventually got through it. So it's six months and okay. then there's other training that happens on the back yeah. end of that. Another like four to six months of training. And then you go to the team and on the team, you're actually, when I went through, I, I went through that block, through that training. And then I, I went to airborne army airborne school to learn how to fall down through for three weeks before they let us jump out of an airplane. <laughs> and then I went to the team. And then when I was on the team, I went to another block of training to teach us like in, in buds, they only teach you like the absolute basics. Make sure you're safe with the weapon. Make sure you're not going to quit. Make sure you're safe underwater. You can figure stuff out underwater. And then, you know, once you go to, to the team and you go to this other block of training, you learn more advanced techniques. You learn how to navigate underwater. You learn how to do ship attacks. You learn how to actually shoot, move, and communicate on land. And, you, you know, you jump out of airplanes and fast rope on, you know, from helicopters and use night vision goggles and, and do all the things that you see in the movies or, or whatever, or you hear about on TV. But then you're yes. still at a very basic level of tactical proficiency. And then you get to the SEAL teams and then you actually learn how to be a real Navy SEAL. So it's about it's about a year and a half. OK, OK, OK. Until you like actually show up at the team. OK, ready to go. OK, 
That's that's so interesting because the, the the whole reason I was curious about that is because, you know, from from my civilian perspective, we we watch the Discovery Channel. Yep. And it's one week. It's hell week. That's all we hear about. Yes. And that's so what everyone thinks. So yes. I would I, <laughs> and I and I thought I'm like, surely it, it's more than just one week. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So now Tell me about the the overall experience of SEAL training because, I mean, my goodness, I mean, from from what I know, what I, shows I watch, I mean, from what most people say, it's absolutely just grueling. And so I would love for you to just kind of unpack a little bit of it for me and, 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 and describe it from, you know, your perspective. So I think that almost anyone can make it through SEAL training. Okay because I did it. And I'm just a mediocre kid from somewhere in Mississippi. SEAL training, I like to say SEAL training is not easy, but it's simple. All you have to do is show up on time, do what you're told to do, and then go home. And then the next day, do it again. It's, but like I said, it's not easy. There's a path. You just have to go down the path. You know, you're, you're going to find out potentially where your limits are. And on different days, you have different limits. Like some days I feel like I can go a lot harder or last a lot longer doing something that I'm asked to do than I could on another day. And, you know, Hell Week kind of exposes a lot of that. So Hell Week is it's five and a half days of you don't sleep, you're cold, you're wet, you're miserable the entire time. And and you you work as a boat crew, which is seven guys, and you carry this boat around on your head pretty much the entire time. And then different classes are, let's see, have a different level of hardness or a different kind of hardness. If you're in a in a winter class, the Pacific Ocean, people don't think that Southern California is cold and the Pacific Ocean is, is frigid. It's absolutely frigid and it's absolutely cold. Although there are a couple of months out of the year where the ocean is nice and warm and the 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 weather in California is is like hot and yeah. <laughs> great beach weather. The rest of the time it's cool. It's usually it's usually like foggy in the morning and uh the water is generally about between 40 and 60 degrees. That's frigid. <laughs> usually in that like 50 60 degree range. Yeah. It's chilly for sure. That's good for, you know, keeping the inflammation of your body down. Yeah. But in the winter more winter classes, you spend more time in the ocean and that cold water gets a lot of people. In yes. summer classes, they just have you carry that boat on your head, like pretty much nonstop. You're still carrying the boat on your head, but remember, you know, there's 24 hours in a day. It's five and a half days. It doesn't matter what you do. It just, it sucks. But all you got to do is just keep going. Yes. Yes. So let me ask you this is you said at the beginning that it's relatively easy in principle. So why then is there such a high rate of people who don't make it through? I think it's just in your head. You made the decision to not make it through. That's what I think. Just because I've I spent a lot of time there. I watched a lot of guys come and go. And, you know, I watched guys quit. They would come in. This would be their second or third time showing up. They would quit the first day. Mm. They've been there before. They already know what's happening. They did all this work and did spent all this money to get your uniforms right and name tapes. And like, it's a lot of work just to get ready for the first day of SEAL training. And they don't just like, you don't just like, they don't just like you show up and like they, they shove you in there. They actually try to prepare you because they actually want good quality guys coming out the back end of it. 
and they know that you you don't show up knowing everything. So they kind of hold your hand a little bit as you get started. And then like day one, you you know what's going to happen. You know what's happening. You know how it's going to go down. There's no secrets. And then guys like quit like just a little bit into it. And so I think they they just don't have, they didn't actually want it. Like I had so many people tell me you're never going to make it. You can't do it. A lot of these people actually went to SEAL training and quit. I found that out later. Mm. <laughs> you know, I had other people tell me you're never going to make it. Or I had people saying, well, are you going to make it? And I would just say, well, I didn't come all this way to not make it. I didn't come here to quit. Yeah. So uh, not finishing the training was never an option for me. And I think it's just people had that as an option in their mind. Like, oh, I don't really want it that bad. I want to go do something else. Yes. And I think that's, I think that's what a lot of it was. I mean, some of it were, you know, people were just like, I'm just, I'm just not getting back in that ocean. That water, it, it broke them, like kind of physically, like psychologically broke them. And, you know, if, if like these same people who quit during a winter class would have been fine in a summer class because a lot of those guys were just like amazing athletes. They made everything look easy. And uh, for me, I just suffered the whole time because I had like I have no natural ability. I didn't play sports in, in school. I, I wanted to, but my dad wouldn't let me. My grades were not good. I'm not a good leader. I'm not a good like I was I'm not good at any of that stuff. And so and I, you know, learned how, you know, I was pretty good at feeling sorry for myself. But when I was surrounded by people who wanted to be there, it didn't matter how much I felt sorry for myself or how much my legs hurt or how much I wanted to slow down on a run while we we're carrying this boat on our head. As long as I was, and it was interesting, I was surrounded by people who wanted to be there and wanted to win at some points. And I was surrounded by people who just didn't want to be there at other points. And both of them were super motivating. One of them, like when people didn't want to be there, I'm like, get out. Yeah. You don't belong here. Like you got to go. You're slowing me down. You're in my way with teams that were, they just want to be in the front. They wanted to win every race. I was like, I don't know if I can keep up, but I'm just going to do my best. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to slow down. I'm just going to suffer through this pain that I'm struggling with right now because I'm not going to let the team down. Yes. And so it's, I think it was Jim Rohn who said, you're, you're the, the sum of the five people that you surround yourself with. Well, in SEAL training, you're surrounded by six other guys when you're working together and they can bring you up or down. And I was fortunate, you know, during Hell Week that they brought me up. They brought me up to their level. So it was, you know, again, SEAL training, it's, it's hard, but it's simple. You just have to do what you got to do. You just have to make it. And I, I tell people you have two choices in SEAL training. You can, you can quit or you can keep going. And then if you decide to keep going, you have another you know, option. You can either be, keep going and be mediocre or you can keep going and be awesome. And I try to surround myself with people who want to be awesome. Yeah, I love that. It, it, it's kind of like the, uh, the principle that you never want to be the smartest guy in the room. Right. You know, you, you always want to be learning from others. Yeah, 100%. I love that. I love that. So, so talk to me a little bit. You, you mentioned earlier that you had some injuries that, that you actually took SEAL training. You took you longer than normal. Talk to me about that. What, what is that, that story? I had so many injuries. Okay. <laughs> Let's see. One time I, I, <laughs> I think one of the first ones was once I got stepped on and I had some sort of like, it wasn't compartment syndrome, but 
we later found out that there was an actual fracture in my leg, uh. but that's, you know, that was many months later. But after that, I, I rolled my ankle and actually broke my ankle. And I didn't realize, and this was, I was just about to start my first class and we were kind of doing like this two week prep phase to like learn all the skills that you need to really get through first phase. Uh, you just have to like keep going and make it through first phase. Yeah. I was not a great runner. So we have what's called the goon squad. Okay. If you can't keep up on a run, then you get a little extra training. And so I spent a lot of time. I spent most of my, you know, times in first phase in the goon squad. But so I remember, I remember it happening like as if it were yesterday. I heard it audibly, but I, we were like running over these giant sand berms that are in, in Coronado, California. And I rolled my ankle and I heard it and it was no big deal. I was just like, whatever. I, it sucks. That's I'm back in the ocean. I'm back out. I'm getting wet and sandy come back we you know we secure for the day the next day i go out and we're running the obstacle course and i just don't have the power that i normally have doing some of these obstacles and i was like that's super weird so i went to medical and i was like i don't know what's wrong but i just don't have the power like i rolled my ankle maybe i sprang it whatever and the, i remember the the doc she was like so you probably just need to suck it up because she sees kids come through there all the time whining and complaining about stuff that's not really wrong with them and she's like you probably just need to suck it up but we'll send you in for x-rays. And I came back from getting x-rays and she apologized to me. She was like, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Your ankle is actually broken. There's like about an inch piece of bone that's detached from the, like on the, at the bottom of your, mm. I, I don't remember the outside bone, tibia or fibula that's detached and your ankle is for sure broken. And I was wow. like, Oh, I guess that explains a lot. Yeah. So they gave me like a, an air cast to put inside my boot and then a like a carbon fiber plate that doesn't flex to put in the sole so i would just wear that you know inside my boot and my foot wouldn't move around and i could still walk and do certain things until that that bone is still not attached yeah it's still floating around in there but everything else was able to like compensate for it and so that was my first injury my first time you know getting hurt the second time no one knows really what was wrong with me, what happened doing a run. I'm about, you know, three weeks into first phase, three and a half weeks. I'm stoked. I keep up on my very first run, my very first kind of conditioning run. And I'm like sitting there stretching all good to go. This was a uh, Thursday, I think. And then, you know, they have the goon squad going over there and I'm like, I'm so proud of myself. I'm like, dude, I made it. I'm getting, becoming a better runner. I'm faster. I'm stronger. And then the goon squad is done and they say, all right, everyone go hit the surf. And I stand up and then I fall down uh, something. No one knows there's like MRIs, nothing shows anything and wrong with my knee, but my knee just stopped working. Like if I stood on my left foot, I would collapse. Mm. And so I hobbled out to the, to, to the surf zone, got wet, came back. And I was like, then I went to medical the next day. I was like, Hey, something's wrong with my knee. And they're like, okay, yep, nothing. We don't see anything. And so they were going, the medical said, okay, we're going to roll you. But then I went to, you know, the staff, like the, the senior seals on staff. Okay. And the first guy that I went to said, yeah, clearly this is your second time getting injured. You clearly did not prepare to show up for training. So I recommend that we kick you out of training. And I was like, uh... whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. And so he sent me out of the room. I still remember that guy. And I remember when he became a CEO of SEAL Team 4, I hated him. <laughs> I've hated him ever since that day. I still don't like him. <laughs> Love it. And, and I've deployed with him. Yes. So, and I still don't like him. But 
And then I went to, it's funny. I can't stand that guy. I remember everything about him, but the guy, so I went to see the next guy who has the final say. And, uh, and so I like, I'm standing there in his office on crutches, like crying and telling him about, you know, the CNO, if I leave, I may never have an opportunity to come back, blah, all this other stuff. And so he says, go stand outside. I'll be back in a minute. And he leaves and he's gone for like four hours. And I'm just standing out there in the, on the buds, in the middle of the compound, waiting on my crutches, busted up knee. And uh, he comes back. He's like, what are you doing here? I said, you told me to stand outside. He's like, oh, <laughs> go check in over there. You'll be in, the, you'll, we're going to roll you one more class. I was like, okay. <laughs> so after that, I never healed up. Yeah. Like, the next class, I didn't heal up. I was still like gimpy and hobbling around and, and everything. And I had to pass certain events in order to keep going in order to make it to hell week. And so I was able to pass one four mile time run in enough time to, you know, to pass it in the 32 minutes or whatever the, the requirement is. And I remember that day again, as if it were yesterday, like these little moments yes. that just stick out in my brain. And I remember wake, wake, like I woke up that morning and I was like, I'm going to crush that run today. Yes. Again, I'm not a good runner and I'm broken, but I got out there. I, I remember it was after lunch. I skipped lunch that day uh, or they brought me a box lunch. I ate like some pieces of it. Maybe I ate dessert or something. I don't know. And I, just to kind of like save my legs, because to go to Chow, it's a it's a mile run to the to Chow. And then a mile run back and you run as a whole big group and it takes however long. And so I just stayed back in the compound and I helped, you know, prep the boats for the boat evolution that we were going to do after lunch. I think we did the four mile time run and then we did the, the boat evolution, but we had to have the boats ready. So I stayed back, worked on the boats, got out there on the beach and I passed that run and that allowed me to go to hell week. And then in hell week, about Wednesday or Thursday, my legs started working again. Okay. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. And so, uh, you know, made it through hell week. But because I had been limping all that time, I had stress fractures on my other leg. And now oh. I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. So I go to medical again and they're like, okay, we recommend you, you know, rolling you. And then I go before those boards again. And, you know, I'm like, hey, I, if I need to like, and I'm like, I'm very clear. If I need to run on a broken leg, that's what I will do. That's how I got up to here. I know you guys have seen me like gimping along this whole time, you know, told the whole CNO story and all that other stuff. And they're like, go sit down over there. And they came back. Okay, check. You're going to be in the next class. We're going to roll you. This is your last roll. I'm like, okay, three strikes. So I'm on like strike three. So I, there's no other options. Like I have to make it. So those were, that's kind of a long story to all my injuries, but yeah eventually made it through. Yeah. When you say that they roll you to another class, does that mean literally starting at zero again with another class and going through it all again? Not always. So if you, there are these major milestones okay. in buds. So first phase you have, it's, it was, we'll just say, we'll just say it's eight weeks. Like each block is eight weeks, eight weeks long. Hell week is a major milestone. Like each block of training, like first phase is like just sort of the, the, the grinded out, like see if you have what it takes hell week phase. Second phase is all diving. And there's a, a, like a mini hell week in second phase. And then third phase is all land warfare stuff. Okay. So since I made it through hell week, this major milestone, I didn't have to go back and start the first day of, of first phase. Okay. I healed up. I, you know, I, I, I was in this sort of holding area, still working out twice a day with the instructors and with like new guys that were coming in, 
getting ready to class up, waiting for, you know, the new class to start, go through Hell Week, and then I yes. join them after Hell Week. Wow, 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 wow. This is this is incredible. Now I have I have one last question about actual SEAL training and then we'll we'll move on. Is I always remember watching the shows yes. and there was always the bell. Would you talk about the bell? The bell when somebody basically quits. Yeah. I would love for you to to share about that. So it's interesting. So you can quit on an evolution. Sometimes they bring the bell with you, with them, out on the beach doing all this, you know, surf. We call it surf conditioning now, but it's surf torture is what they called it back in the day (laughs) or cold water immersion, something like that. And, you know, they bring like oftentimes they'll say, you know, we will secure this evolution if we get five people to quit and no one's quitting, no one's quitting. And then like the one guy quits and people are like, oh, it's okay to quit. And they just follow in suit and you have like 10 people quit. Like what happened? How you just were, it's not any colder. (laughs) It's only two minutes longer and not thinking like this evolution is going to end. Like that was one of the things in, in seal training that I think got to most people. They couldn't conceptualize like, this thing that you're doing right now is going to end. Hmm. It's fine. Like it'll, it's only going to last for so long. And so I, you know, I do some, some speaking from stage and I talk about never quit. And I talk about creating small victories and, you know, and I use hell week as an example, like it doesn't matter how much it sucks. They feed you four times a day. So you just go and go and go, you know, that this thing is going to end. This evolution is going to end and they're going to take you to chow. They're going to feed you. So they, they can't, even though it's like five and a half days, there are still breaks along the way. And I would think, you know, there were nights where I'm like laying there in the surf zone, like before hell week, like jackhammering, dry heaving because the silt, silty sand is going up my nose and down my throat and like causing the gag reflex. I'm like dry (laughs) heaving, which is kind of maybe warm, warmed me up a little bit. All I was like, I'm like, dude, in an hour, I'm going to be in a hot shower and, you know, wrapped up in my, with my down blanket. Yes. (laughs) That's what I was thinking. I'm like, this is only going to last so long. Other people weren't thinking that. So in buds, you, there's a bell. There's two bells. There's one they carry around and one that's in the main compound. And so you can be out on this evolution on the beach and you can quit. And that's that's not the end of it. You quit. Maybe you ring the bell there on the beach. But what they do is they make it very ceremonial. They're like, there's going to be no question about this. Go back, put on a clean uniform, brand new, pressed everything, shiny boots, go to the first day's office, stand on those footprints, ring the bell three times. And then go put your helmet in line at the end of like a line of like 150 other helmets. Or, you know, maybe you're the first guy to quit and put your helmet right there. And there's, you know, there are pictures of just like lines and lines of of helmets of guys that quit. So mm. they make it very ceremonial. So in order to like, there's no question like, no, I didn't really quit. No, no, you quit more than once. You quit like on the evolution and then you went back and you like quit for real, like this very ceremonial, like. I don't want to be a part of this program and then put your helmet on the, on the grinder after ringing the bell. Wow. Why do you feel that they, they, they do it like that? Making quitting such this big kind of ceremonial, you know, deal. I think sometimes there's regret. There's, I think there's most of the time there's regret for quitting something. You know, it doesn't matter what it is in your life that you maybe quit on. Maybe I could have kept going a little more. 
they're trying to get the best qualified guy through training. And there are times where you like, maybe you're like, oh, I, I, I had a micro quit. And then that they're like, maybe I can turn around and go back. But they, they just want you to go through the motions. Like, all right, you know, you know, in your heart that this is not for you. Yes. You can come back. You can change your mind and come back. But in your heart, you've made several very conscious decisions demonstrating that you you don't want to be a part of this program. Yes. And so, because I, I can't tell you how many people I have run into who says that they, oh, well, the instructors didn't like me or something. <laughs> ha- I got injured. Yeah, everything. Everybody gets hurt. Everybody, whatever. The instructors don't like anyone. <laughs> but they quit. Yes. Oh, I was injured. Well, you know what? I was injured three different times and I cried like a baby and bawled my eyes out and poured my heart out in order to stay. Yeah. So it's, you know, lots of people have lots of excuses and that's fine, but you quit at the end of the day. You know what? I I have to, I have to say this. I I sound kind of callous there, but you know, no, 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 but, but (laughs) I am a little bit, I think. No, but what, what I, what I love about this and, and I think back to a quote, I don't know if I heard it, it was some type of show or something I heard one day and it was, it was about the seals. And it was a guy who said, he's like, no, he's like, we're, we're not any better than anyone else. Everyone else just sucks. And, right, and yeah. so when I listen <laughs> to you and I think I'm like, I can see this is, the, this is one of them guys, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. I, yeah. I, and you, you know what? It's some people just don't have the physical capacity to do it. For example, in my class, we'll just use race as an example. Okay. You know, black guys can't swim that well. Yes. Unless they're good swimmers. And I remember my first class, we had like six, six black guys. And, you know, there are quotas like we want to have more black seals, la, 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 whatever. If they meet the requirements. Yes. And we did have a, you know, a, a bunch of guys quit the first time. And they're like, so the instructors all brought them. They were like, whoa, what the heck happened here? What's going on? <laughs> so they did like a whole big come to Jesus and like, what's going on? And they're like, okay, if you want to do it again, you can start in the next class. Yes. You quit already. We'll let you start again. We'll give you another shot. And that's also kind of that ceremonial. They're like, I didn't mean like, I just got scared. I'm sorry. Like this was like day one or something. And it was a water evolution. And so most of those guys, actually a couple of the guys made it. Some of them couldn't make it through the dive phase part of it. Like they made it through hell week. They made it through, you know, first phase, but they got to the second phase and they just, couldn't do the underwater stuff that well. So they went over and they did, you know, became boat guys. They're still part of, you know, special operations, but they're not Navy SEALs. They're naval combat crewmen. Okay. And drove these really cool high-speed boats that we have. Yeah. So they weren't like sent away. They still like, they, they proved that they could do really hard stuff. They just couldn't do stuff underwater. Yes. I had a point. I was going somewhere with that. Oh, so there was this one guy in, in one of my classes in first phase, and there's this evolution called drown proofing, where they tie you up, you're, you tie your hands and feet, feet together and hands behind your back, and you have to do all these different evolutions in the water. So you have to, like, you have to bob, like, go to, you know, blow all the air out of your lungs, sink to the bottom, jump just high enough to get a new breath of air and then blow it all out. So you have to, this is like about commitment, like 100% commitment to this evolution. And then after that, you have to float. Well, this guy, he was, he was big, big black guy, (laughs) yoked, like yoked. (laughs) He played uh, football for Tennessee and then he went out for the Raiders 
And then he hurt his shoulder and they dropped him. But like, he's like, he was big, as big as a, like he was a professional football player Yes, for a, a short amount of time. And then he came and became a seal or he came to seal training. Okay. They tried as hard as they could to get this guy to pass this evolution. Like the instru- he still has to do the standards. You have to meet the standards no matter what. Yes. That's why the standards are there. He just couldn't float. He was just so thick, so dense with muscle, like his, like they just physically couldn't float. Yes. And so he didn't make it through because of his anatomy and the way that he was just built. Like if he would like gone away yes. and like lost like 30 pounds of muscle and put on a little bit of fat, he probably, he, you know, it would have been a, a better odds of making it, but he just couldn't like, he couldn't do that physical evolution. He just was genetically superior in so many other ways, but he couldn't do it, you know, the, the thing in the water. So he wasn't a great swimmer, but he was good enough to get, you know, past the swims. Yeah. So that, I mean, that, that's a little bit of it is, you know, we, I don't even remember the question, but I remember it was, it was something. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I just threw race in there just because. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the question was, you answered it really well. So I like it. So, <laughs> no, but but so, so so moving on a little bit, I would love to know, obviously you passed, you became a SEAL, all this crazy training that we're talking about, does it even prepare you though for what you're really facing when you're out there? No. No. I will tell you, I have been more, so in, in training, they're not going to let you die. Yes. I mean, you can die. There have been kids that have died in training and that sucks. So a lot of it's like pre-existing heart condition or something weird or, you know, we there was uh, two classes before mine. A kid got like flesh eating bacteria and he had to get he got, you know, kicked out because like he lost half of his half the muscle of his leg because of this weird bacteria stuff that was in the like the mud in kind of South Coronado Island. OK, but, you know, th- they're not going to let you die. You know that like I talked earlier, you know that the thing that you're doing is going to end. I have been in training and real world scenarios where you don't know when it's going to end. Like if you have a really good training staff, really good training cadre, when things get hard, they make it a little bit harder Hmm. because the theory is the, you know, the more you sweat in training, the less you bleed in war or whatever. It didn't matter if we were like doing, you know, really long, complicated underwater, you know, diving in harsh conditions where someone could really get hurt and like super cold and things are going badly. And you're like, I, can I just start over? I would love to just start over. Like, they're like, no, just keep going. Like finish the problem. That's your job. You're, you're a Navy SEAL for crying out loud. Yeah. Oh, okay. (laughs) So make me feel bad. Or in combat where you, you know, you go out for like a, a a short mission, like overnight and you're still out there three weeks later. Yes. Kind of like that. And you're like, well, how did this, like, I'm not going back and, you know, I'm not, there's no warm, hot shower and uh, down blanket waiting for me. Like, it's, yes. I don't know if I will even ever see that again, if yes. I'll ever come out of this situation again. So for sure, it's like all BUDS is, all SEAL training is, is a selection process. It's like an interview process. You're interviewing for a job. So I do, uh, you know, consulting for some companies and, and we talk about hire fast, fire fast, or if a hire slow, fire slow, or how that whole thing works out. And really seal training is just like, it's that interview process. Do you have the mental capacity to do this really hard thing that we're going to ask you to do later on? Yeah. And we're going to do it as safely as possible. And so I, I just kind of think about it like that because what you're going to do in the real world is going to be hard and scary and 
and test you more than anything that they could have ever done to you in SEAL training. Yes. So kind of leading off of that, what was, if you wouldn't mind sharing, what was your your experience like first deployment mission that that you went on? So let's see. Not all not all deployments are super combat. Okay. Some of them are a lot more which we we prefer super combat. Yes. <laughs> some of them, you know, some of them, you know, turn out to be more like okay, we were fighting this guy or this warlord or this village elder or this you know this group of people, but now, you know, we we won, but now we have, you know, they're going to live here after we leave. So now we need to build diplomacy. We need to turn those people that we were fighting a few months ago into better soldiers or police force or whatever in order to take care of their own country. So it's like they're weird, interesting dynamics that you have to or the, the team that was here before they had a lot of combat, you know, broke the tribe and now we're building them back up. And so that's super weird to, to do stuff like that. But my first deployment was Afghanistan. I had an opportunity to go over, not as a, not as necessarily a shooter, like in the, in the platoon, but as someone, a senior guy working in like the headquarters element in Afghanistan. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Okay. I'll go. And while I was there, every opportunity that I could find, I went out with either the platoon or some army guys, or there was a buddy of mine who I actually went to buds with. He left the SEAL teams and joined the army to fly helicopters. And I ran into him in Afghanistan, <laughs> Bagram, Afghanistan of all places. And so I was like, you know, he's like, we're going to go do this mission. We're going to do this and that and whatever and some whatever. And I'm like, yeah, can I go? I just want to, you know, get out of this yeah. like tent that I, that I work in. <laughs> And I think, you know, it, so we got shot at, we did some other stuff. Uh, eventually I, I got to go out and spend a bunch of time with the platoon because my next job, I was going to be a platoon chief. So I got to go observe someone leading in combat, like how to do it. It was kind of like OJT, like, okay, I'm, I'm watching you. What are the good things you're doing? What are the bad things you're doing? And so any gunfights or any adversity that we ran into, it was cool we ended up like we were going to go do like a little drive around until someone shot at us or tried to whatever and then that ended up being like four weeks out in the field like basically car camping and then driving to find more bad guys wow so it was it was an interesting mission that i had never done anything remotely close to trying to prepare for but i just you know because of the training that i had we just i just what's everyone else doing okay i'm gonna do that too yeah yeah, definitely. Now, when was all of this in relation to, say, 9-11? So I was actually teaching sniper school when 9-11 happened. Okay. I somehow was the senior. I was the senior. I'm going to say senior instructor on the ground. I was not the senior guy. The guys that were more senior to me were off. They were in California trying to consolidate. So the East Coast had a sniper program and the West Coast had a sniper program. And they were just trying to consolidate the programs into one make it like a fi- like official like sniper school navy doctrine whatever and so we're like loading up to go to the range and i turn on the truck and an npr comes on and they talk about like the you know first attack on the world trade center where it was like a, a bomb a, a truck full of demo that went off and they that was all repaired and they said they started saying something about airplanes and i was like what the 
like the, the guy that was in the truck, his name was Jeff. And I was like, Jeff, what? I feel like we should go back inside and see what's on the news. And so we went back inside and you see like one of the towers on fire. Mm. And so I was like, so I think we should like cancel the range and like bring everyone back. And then there was other news about maybe the Pentagon. I don't really remember like other airplane stuff because it was very kind of chaotic. Yes. And so we called everyone back from the range. And like, as people, the guys were walking in the door, we watched the second plane fly into the, into the tower. So uh, I was like, oh my God, what do I, how, who I'm, and all the guys are like, what do we do? Are we, do we go to New York? Do we do like, we didn't know that we're going to war yet. Yes. And so eventually I called back to the headquarters. And I was like, Hey, what do we do? How do we do this? And he said, you know, the guy I called, he was like, take the rest of the day off, continue training. And because we're going to need those skills very soon. And I was like, okay, check. Yes. So that was 2001. I didn't get to deploy to combat until 2003. Okay. Because it was September, it was like a year late, year and a half later before I got to go. The battlefield was a, a little more mature, but still nothing compared to, you know, the last time I was in Afghanistan, which was just ridiculous. Yeah. As far as like infrastructure and things like that. I was living in like, I was living in like a, they call them a bee hut. They're just a plywood building. Yeah. A plywood building yeah. and working in a tent and, you know, mortars were coming in and landing all around us. And it was like, I was like, oh. Or when we're like off with the, you know, you know, driving around country and stuff starts blowing up around you, or we stop in Kandahar and, you know, for the night to like brush our teeth and, and take a, a hot shower before we head back out and, you know, pick up supplies and mortars are like slicing through the tents that we're sleeping in. So that was kind of weird too. <laughs> yeah. We, we, weird is a uh, understatement. That's, that's <laughs> incredible. So now, when was that the your last deployment to Afghanistan? Let's see. I have to think about it. It was I want to say 14, but I could be wrong. I think 2014. Okay. I could be way off on that. Okay. I, I guess I was just wondering what was it just the difference in the mission that you were there for? Why the the vast difference of experience from from when you first went to then that time? So there was, you know, 20 years of combat that happened you know, during that period. So yes, when Afghanistan first kicked off, you know, all the guys that, that got there in the, in the first place, they were like living in like whatever sort of existing shelter air hangar or whatever, or just in a tent somewhere, not really knowing what to expect. And over time, the area got built up. Bagram got built up. Kandahar, there was not a whole lot down there. There was no wall. There was like very little security down there. When I went back, it was the last time I was there, I didn't even recognize the the place. I didn't recognize Kandahar. And, you know, when I was in Afghanistan, we had just started the war in Iraq. Okay. And so half the military was in Iraq. And then there was like maybe, you know, 30% of the people were in Afghanistan. And I would see stuff. There would be like all kind of stuff happening in Afghanistan. You don't see anything about it on the news, but you see like, something about something in, in Iraq. And I would call buddies that were over there and I'm like, what's going on? And they're like, not that much really. And so it was just, you know, you didn't hear about it because the media was focused on Iraq. They weren't looking at Afghanistan. Yes. And, you know, eventually Iraq shut down. And so all the focus came back to Afghanistan, all the money came to Afghanistan. And, you know, it was, like I said, I didn't recognize the place. Like 
I heard that in Kandahar, which was a place that didn't even have like real security when I was there the first time, they had a Ruby Tuesdays and they had an ice skating rink. And I was like, we are not at war anymore. What the hell is going on? So it was, you know, 20 years of like just shoveling money into, you know, some big organizations yep. for the quality of life of the soldier, I guess. Wow. You know, it was, it was, a, it was a completely different place. And, you know, we, I mean, we had people like spread out all over the country. We had people living in villages. Like I would kind of pissed me off a little bit. I had, we had guys living in villages with the locals and I visited them and they were like austere, like the most austere, you know, third world conditions that you could imagine with, you know, as much security as they could provide themselves while there's a Ruby Tuesdays, like a, hundred miles away. Wow. Super wow. weird. And like, I'm like, there's a, an inequity going on here. Yeah, totally. Totally. Wow. That's incredible. So during your, your time serving, were most all of your deployments all based in like the Middle East in that region of the world? So pre 9-11, we had a very different construct. So pre 9-11, there was no war going on. Yes. Most of the work, the deployments that we did were training other other units okay other you know allied special forces so you know my first deployment was to rota spain and then from there it was really a european vacation <laughs> where we, we we deployed to to spain and then i went to we went to france to train with the french we went to italy to train with the italians we went to germany to train with the germans we went to greece to train with the greeks we trained with the Spanish and we did stuff with the submarines and, and all sorts of other stuff. That was like the pre pre 9-11 deployments. You know, all the teams were geographically poised. So, you know, there were teams that were focused on South America. There were teams that were focused on winter in Europe. There were teams that were focused on the Middle East. There were teams. That, so, you know, we deployed all over the world. But then when 9-11, there were teams that would like, all they did is go right on a ship and wait to go take down a, you know, some sort of vessel in the Persian Gulf that was, you know, sanctions against Iraq or Iran or, or something like that. So th that was the beginning. And then towards the end, now we have guys all over the world, Philippines, Yemen, Africa. And there wasn't a lot of focus on Africa at the time. Now there's a lot of focus on Africa. And so I have seven deployments to combat, but okay. 10 deployments total. So some of my deployments were more yes. strategic, yes, if you will. Interesting. Interesting. Question, as far as your, your team, you know, you mentioned in training, you guys had team. I, I believe you said it was, was it seven men total per team? So a boat crew in training, a boat crew was seven guys. So you have okay three guys on each side and then a coxswain. So it's just a little rubber boat. It's about 250, 350 pounds that you carry around. You they use it to build teamwork and leadership. Okay. And so you're part of a, a boat crew. You're part of a, you know, you call it a, a platoon. You could call it a squad. You could call it whatever you want, but we carried boats around. So we called it a boat crew. And so everything was a race in training. And so again, you learned, you know, the coxswain, the guy who was steering the boat was telling you like stroke, stroke, or get out, or he was giving all the commands, but you could rotate that position out. Yes. I never wanted that position. I never wanted the the stress <laughs> of being the leader in that group. And, and it turns out I ended up being, you know, filling a, a tremendous amount of leadership roles that I 
may or may not have been prepared for. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. So so I was I was curious about that because then when you talk about when you're actually going out on missions and stuff, what size like team are you working in? Is it still a small seven man team? Huh. No. So it, so interesting. So my first deployment to Iraq, the very first mission was probably the most complicated of my entire career. Oh wow. Brand new, never led anyone in combat, had been to combat, but never led anyone. And we had seven targets that we needed to hit as quickly, as simultaneously as possible. And doing this in conjunction with an Iraqi trained force, uh, they were trained by the like a three-letter agency. And we had two SEALs that were connected with them. And so I was like, I need more people. So I reached out to other platoons that were there in Iraq and I said, hey, who can you spare? And so I, my first mission that I was leading, I had 74 people from six different SEAL teams, all kind of working together to go do, you know, we hit, I divided everyone up into like three groups and uh, we hit, you know, three buildings as simultaneously as we could. And then once those were secured and we got the bad guys out of there, we flexed to the, the next two and then, and then cleaned everything up. But I have a lot of lessons learned from that first mission on kind of the things that you should focus on and the things that don't really matter. And it's interesting that things that you focus on are not the things that are sexy. They're the things that are the most basic things that if they can go wrong, they will go wrong. Yes. <laughs> wow. So, so no, that that's another thing that's very interesting because, again, I don't think I think of these small teams going in doing these strategic missions. I never think of a large group of SEALs working together in, in a capacity like that. That's interesting. Yeah. There were missions and, and deployments where we would get a little bit of intel that showed us exactly where a bad guy was. But not exactly like it was sort of good, but not really. Yes. So we would go in and we would basically take down like half of a city block, like, you know, have snipers on roofs, have guys on roof on surrounding the target, you know, looking out for enemies coming in. We had vehicles on the ground and then we had the main assault force going in. Sometimes, you know, we would have the everyone climb three stories up on some rickety building in downtown Baghdad and then assault the target from the top to the bottom. Wow. And then have guys like standing by ready if anyone ran out the, you know, ran out the, the bottom floor. And so it was, uh, you know, if no one is expecting you, no one is expecting an intruder to come in from three stories up into your house. Yeah. So we would, you know, mix things up and, but yeah, we would have, you know, 50, 60 guys on the ground and then, you know, managing the, the command and control and they're not all seals. Some of them are, I have a combat camera guy. I've got some other guys helping me without with Intel. I've got other guys doing other things, dog handlers. Yeah. So it, it can be a very big element. It's not where we started when my first team, I worked in like four to eight man groups. And then like my first combat deployment, I have like 74 guys that I'm like kind of running around on the battlefield trying yeah. to do the command and control. And because I'm a SEAL and an operator, I want to like get in there and kick the doors and <laughs> and do those things as well. So 
Exactly. I had a lot of lessons that I needed to learn along the way. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how many years total did you end up serving as a SEAL? 23 of my 26 years, I was in the SEAL teams. Is that like that seems in the capacity of the type of missions that SEALs are doing, that seems like a really long time to me. Is it or is that average? Well, you're not always in a platoon. So some of my time... I was working at the headquarters doing, you know, admin jobs. Okay. There are jobs that have to get done. So you get assigned to do it. So you do it for your two years or whatever, or three years or however long it is. So my, you know, when I went to Afghanistan the first time, I was actually doing air coordination for deployment flights, getting ready for, you know, I'm, I'm like just doing my time behind a desk before I go back to the team and do, you know, regular Navy SEAL stuff. Or, you know, guys will be at the team for five or six years and then they'll go become an, an instructor somewhere, like either running land warfare training or close quarters combat or diving, or maybe they go to BUDS and they train guys out there and then they come back to the team with a little bit of a different skill set, a little more mastery of certain skill sets, and then, you know, take over leadership roles like that. So you're not always, well, you're in the teams, but you're not always in a platoon doing that work. Okay. Gotcha, gotcha. But it's, I mean, you know, if they would have let me stay for, for 30 years, I, I would have. Yeah. <laughs> what made you finally get out? They only let me stay for 26 years. Okay. <laughs> and it's really based off my, my rank. Okay. So if, so I, I retired as a, as an E8. I'm not politically correct enough to be an E9. Okay. <laughs> I don't, you know, I sometimes speak my voice yes. when I shouldn't. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm authentic. Yes. And so I, I didn't play the political game very well. I've failed at it, yeah. actually. <laughs> and so as an EA, you can only stay 26 years, maybe 20. You could maybe push it out if you're doing some kind of special something somewhere in the world out to 28 years. But that would that would have been the max for me. So at 26 years, they're like, all right, see you later. We got to make room for, you know, these new guys coming up through the ranks. So, yeah, thanks for playing. Wow. Wow. So, so that brings me kind of to, to a new chapter in our conversation of what was that transition like for you going from that career for so long to civilian life? Uh, it was terrible. It was the, you know, I say that the, my transition from, from the military to civilian life is the hardest military mission I've ever been on. And I'm still on that mission. I'm still working it out. I'm still transitioning. I'm still figuring it out. I'm much further along and I'm, I've figured a lot more stuff out along the way, but you know, being in the military is all I've ever known for my entire adult life from 18 years old till yes, whatever, 26 years later is late forties. Yes. So that that's all I've ever known. And so figuring out what the next thing for me was, was, was hard. And so I went through a lot of different things, a lot of different failures, a lot of different I got a, like, I say, I have a lot of baggage and, uh, some of it's baggage that I, you know, put in there myself. Some of it's baggage from occupational hazards, some of it's baggage from not so awesome relationships, you know, and, and I say, everyone has baggage. We all have baggage. You know, I don't say anything about, I don't talk about PTSD or anything like that. I'm like, I just have stuff that I have to like, I carry around with me and it's, it's up to me to keep carrying it around or take it off. And so, so I have this through my, my process of, of, of figuring my stuff out, I, I came up with this, you know, acronym it's 
this mindset. I call it the get naked mindset. And really what that's all about is, is taking your ego off, taking that baggage that you carry around off, taking that off and kind of setting it in the corner and being a little bit vulnerable. So you exposing yourself so you can actually find healing that you, that you really need and, and try to quiet your mind a little bit so you can have a little bit better self self-talk. But it took me a long time to, to kind of figure that piece of it out. CBD oil was a, was a part of that. And so I was like, it, it had such a positive impact on my life. I started my own CBD company, mostly to help me, but also to help other veterans and, and first responders who are carrying around a ton of baggage to maybe help maybe turn the noise down in their head or anyone else out there that, you know, has a bunch of stress and anxiety and, and baggage that they're carrying around, you know, to help them to, to also to get naked. Absolutely. Absolutely. Does the military do anything of helping our soldiers and any of our, any of the, the armed forces with this transition back to, to life? There's a very, there's a one week course that you go to, to kind of uh, teach you how to write a resume, help you figure out a budget. I don't remember much more of what it covers, but they, they dedicate one week that you have to go to for this transitional time, which is interesting because they dedicate so much time to bringing you in and making you a part of the military weeks and months to make you like a member of the military, but they give you one week on your way out the door. Yeah. So it's not, it's certainly not a, a very robust program at all. There's several nonprofits that I'm, I'm a part of that does a little bit better job of helping, but still there's, there's still not a lot of assistance in the, in the transition. Some of it's like, all right, you're a big boy, go figure it out. Yeah. Or big girl. Yeah. Unfortunately. From, from, you know, your, your experience and, and experience of, of knowing other, other guys, do you feel as though there, there is something that people getting out of the services could do to make it easier? Some type of, program, organization, or just something in their everyday life, tips, advice for that person. And so I've discovered, you know, being on the outside now that there are so many people who go through these, I call them life transitions. I should probably think of a a sexier name for it, (laughs) but it's, you know, life transitions, whether it's, you know, you got married, you had a kid, you got divorced, you bought a house, you sold a house, you find yourself in financial straits, you lose a job, there's a global pandemic, you whatever, you lose your eyesight, whatever it is, there's, there's like some of those things you can't really plan for. But some of those things you can see coming. And if you create a plan, you know, I have a friend who he took a company from $300 million a year to $3.5 billion a year and sold it. And when he sold it, he was like, he thought he lost everything. Mm. He was like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life anymore. You know, I've met the drummer of Slayer. He's like, I, well, I'm not going to take the vaccine. So I can't be on tour anymore around Europe. So I got to figure out what I'm going to do now. And so these, you know, there are these, these transitions that we have to go to where we go from like one state of life to another, and we have to figure out what those things are. So you can do a little bit of planning. So getting out of the military, you can plan, you can like, think about what you're going to do. What do you, what do you want to do? Like you've been doing this thing. If you want to do more of this thing, maybe find a job or an occupation or start your own company to do things like that when you get out. And as a matter of fact, you should probably start that company before you get out and start creating some revenue over there so that you can just like have an easier transition. Absolutely. Or like find a job that, you know, 
and you know, build your resume and several resumes to meet this job that maybe you want to do when you get out and start interviewing and doing all the things that you need to prep, or maybe you need to go get more education. Do that while you're in the military as best as you can. You know, I went from having a PhD, a public high school diploma, <laughs> you know, in my in, in the military to getting my in my last three years while doing my job. I still I got my a bachelor's and a master's in three in my last three years in the in the Navy. So it's wow. doable. I haven't used those those degrees at all, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's certainly doable. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds good. It sounds real good, you know. <laughs> no, and 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 I and I feel like from from basically what you're saying is is this idea of having a plan because I I feel like in in so many aspects of life and in transition, it's when we don't have anything to focus on, we don't have any goals set that that's when we can kind of get in trouble in our own our own heads. Yeah, hundred percent. It's kind of like you you become complacent. And yep. that's when things really happen. When you, when you have no no plan, you have no no idea of really what you're going to do. Absolutely, absolutely. So, talk to me more about the CBD oils and in treatments. I don't know much about them. I would love for you to share more about how they've helped you, and then, of course, about you know your own company doing this. Um, please expand on that. So, CBD oil. It was something that I had heard about while I was still on active duty, but I I knew that I couldn't try it. Because, you know, as far as I knew, it was all marijuana based. And, you know, I'm a child of Nancy Reagan's war on drugs. Just say no. And so I was, you know, pretty terrified. We get drug tested and things like that in the military. And so uh, when I retired, you know, I was pretty much just drinking myself to sleep at night just to kind of turn that noise off in my head. And and eventually I'm like, I've kept hearing more and more about it. And I was like, I maybe I should try this, but I don't know where to get it or how to do it or anything else. And so I was. having lunch with a buddy of mine. And I said, Hey, when I'm done, I'm going to go see if I can find some CBD oil because I was in Virginia. Cause maybe what you have in Virginia is better than what we have in Hawaii. <laughs> I don't know anything about it. I didn't even know that it would j- had just become federally legal. Okay. You know, like right before then. And so, and this was 2019, it became federally legal December 20th of 2018 after the passing of the farm bill, making hemp legal. And the definition of hemp is it has it has uh, 0.3% or less THC in the dried weight of the plant. So it still has all these other minor cannabinoids, CBD, CBG, CBN, THC. These are all cannabinoids. And they've been used for thousands of years as medicine. It also has like terpenes, which are essential oils that do different things for the body. So I was like, it's, well, I, I certainly can't try it. So finally, I decided, okay, I'm going to try it. My buddy, he just happened to have some at his house. He's kind of an uh, you know, a Instagram influencer and people wanted him to kind of push their product. And so he was, he had some and he gave me a bottle and I tried it. And, you know, uh, you know, I like to say that water boils at 212 degrees and I was probably living at like 210 degrees. It didn't take much for me to hit that boiling point. And so when I was taking the CBD oil, I didn't really notice anything really very much at all. Maybe I was a little less pissed off. Maybe I slept a little better, not really sure. But when I ran out, I kind of did a little self-assessment. I was like, did that really do anything? And what I kind of, what I've figured out because I was living at like 210 and I went from like 210 to 205 to 200 to 195 to 190, maybe 185. And I got out of that red zone and really more into like an orange or or like a, a bright yellow zone, probably not yellow yet. 
And then, you know, I ran out and I started getting closer to that boiling point again. Cause I was like, why am I like more pissed off today? Why are things like not going as well? And so I was like, maybe it was the CBD. And so I tried a different brand. I had similar results. And then I met someone in the, in the CBD industry. And I was like, I really wanted her to hire me to like, cause I'm like, I'm super interested now. And, uh, she's like, well, why don't you start your own CBD company? And I said, I don't know how to do that. And she said, you are a Navy SEAL. You can figure it out. So I asked her for my man card back and she gave it to me. And so then I started, <laughs> I started naked warrior recovery you know, and, and our, like most of our products are they're broad spectrum. So they still maintain most of the minor cannabinoids and terpenes, but we remove that little bit of THC that's, that's in the product. Now we're starting to transition to having some products that have, you know, a little more THC just because there's a, a demand for it. And I think probably federally that THC will not be outlawed the way it is right now as a schedule one drug. And if you look at the history of how marijuana became, you know, illegal. It was deeply rooted in racism. <laughs> really? Funny enough. Yes. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, THC does, it does so much. If you compare THC to alcohol, alcohol does so much more damage to your body and your brain than what THC does. Yes. Doing, a, you know, a, a ton of, of research now. But uh, yeah, it was deeply rooted in, in racism the line was something like those Mexicans, they're smoking that marijuana and they're going to rape your daughters and, you know, stuff like that. And, and black people and, and whatever black people and Mexicans, they're smoking that marijuana and they're going to come and rape your, rape your daughters. And that's, that was the driving factor that outlawed marijuana in the United States and really around the world. Yes. Yes. Wow, wow, wow. So talk to me, talk to me about what kind of uses somebody would use the CBD oil for. Yeah, I get on PubMed quite often just to find new research and new things. But the, you know, without making any medical claims, because I can't make any medical claims, but there is there is documented research showing that it reduces stress, it reduces anxiety, it reduces chronic inflammation, reduces different kinds of pain. Not so much acute pain, like you stub your toe. CBD oil is not so great for that. It's more for like chronic inflammation, you know, chronic pains that aren't, you know, like stubbing your toe or a headache. You know, we have some topical solutions as well. Inflammation is one of the worst things that you can have with your body. Sugar creates like, so many things in the environment create inflammation. And so what we didn't know for a super long time is that every mammal has what's called an endocannabinoid system. And this is a giant neuroreceptor system that's in the body that's connected to every other system in your body. If you think about your, your central nervous system, your respiratory system, your immune system, your endocrine system, every system in your body is connected to this endocannabinoid system. And the body creates its own endogenous cannabinoids. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't make enough and so the body gets out of out of balance. And that's where a lot of like chronic illness comes from is you have this dysfunction in the body. And why CBD oil, like many people say, oh, it's like this, it cured my cancer, it cured, it did this, it got rid of my Lyme disease. It didn't do, CBD oil didn't cure anything. Basically what CBD is, the molecule CBD, it goes in, it's like, I call it like a super multivitamin. It goes in and it feeds that endocannabinoid system and it brings it back into homeostasis. 
So once that your endocannabinoid system is back in to homeostasis, it brings all the other systems back into balance. And then the body starts healing itself the way it's designed to. And the way that we discovered the endocannabinoid system is actually, it was, I think it was discovered in the 1960s by an Israeli, but then it was discovered again in the, in the late nineties when some scientists in California were trying to figure out what does THC do like with medical marijuana, what's THC do for the body? How, how is it helpful? And so they put a radioactive isotope on a THC molecule and put it in the human body and they so they could track it and see where it was going and what it was doing. And that's how they found this endocannabinoid system, the CB1 receptors, CBD2 receptors, and things like that. So, you know, when you take CBD oil, you don't get high, you don't like anything like that. It, it just helps calm down your, your anxiety that you might have, or, you know, sometimes it helps with chronic, different chronic pains. I mean, I've been pretty beat up from my time in the SEAL teams, and I have less pain today than I did a couple of years ago when I wasn't taking CBD. Yeah, that's really, really incredible. Now, last question on on it. The products that don't contain the THC, does that mean then that somebody working in a profession where they are drug tested, is it then not a concern? So I can't I can't make that claim because I don't know what else you're putting in your body. Okay. But but okay. I still maintain a top secret clearance. I still get drug tested. And I have zero issues. I was actually, so I have a, a CBD energy drink. Actually, we just ran out. But on my way to my last drug test, I was using that to hydrate to, you know, to, to give a sample. Okay. That's that's quite the testimony. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, I love can't make it. any claims. No, but no, of course. This of is course. my experience. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, listen, man, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to, to be a guest on the podcast to share just your totally awesome story, man. It's uh, so motivating, empowering. And um, for anybody who, who's interested, either, you know, just learning more about you, following you, or, you know, obviously with the, the CBD products that you're doing, where can people go to, to learn more? I think for the, the CBD product, you go to nw-recovery.com or nakedwarriorrecovery.com. I originally had it naked warrior recovery. Then I thought, well, maybe people don't want to write naked in their search engine. I'm not really sure why I had that epiphany, but <laughs> you know, you can still write it in there, naked warrior recovery or nw-recovery.com, or you can Google me, William Branham. I'm pretty done a lot of podcasts. I'm pretty easy to, to Google and you can probably find my, my company pretty easy. There's also, you know, I have this uh, website called five seal secrets and it really talks about, you know, the get naked mindset and, and things like that. You just go in there and put your name and email. And if you want to like have a conversation with me about coaching or speaking or just random questions, you can, the email that I send you with my, my five seal secrets, you can just reply to that. And that comes directly to me, to my email. So, or you can follow me on Instagram at, at William.r.branham, I think is my Instagram handle or naked warrior recovery. I have two of them. I post the same stuff on, on both of them. Okay. Well, fantastic. Well, I will be sure that all of those links are, are provided in this episode uh, show notes for, for easy access. Again, uh, thank you, man, so much for, for being, being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for you listening today, I hope you have been totally enjoying another awesome conversation with William Branham on the podcast today. You know, as always, you know, the goal here on the podcast is to make today a little bit better than, than yesterday. 
in the hopes that tomorrow, who knows what will be in store for you. So uh, we will see you next week. Before I send you out into the world, I want to leave you with three final thoughts taken from the Navy SEALs. And basically, this is to take what you've listened to today and help you apply it to your own life. These three sayings by the Navy SEALs. First one, the only easy day was yesterday. If you wake up each morning with the mindset that there's going to be challenges that you have to overcome, you're going to have to fight a little. You're going to have to get a little dirty. Well, you know what? Then that makes it a little bit easier when obstacles do pop up. Go into the mindset each and every day that you are a warrior. You are capable of overcoming the unthinkable because the only easy day was yesterday. My second thought taken from the SEALs, get comfortable being uncomfortable. The only way that any of us are going to grow and become bigger, better, stronger people is if we step outside of our comfort zone and start to embrace the uncomfortable. Get uncomfortable. Put yourself into uncomfortable situations and watch yourself grow. I guarantee you'll see yourself becoming a better version of yourself than you ever thought possible. Third and final thought, all in, all the time. That means I want you, no matter what it is you're doing, I want you to be all in. You have that no quit mentality. Quitting is not an option. Giving up, not a chance. Because you are all in all the time. All in on life. All in on your marriage. All in on your career. All in on being the best version of you. All in all the time. You got it? You're capable of this. You are taking the field today, and this is your game to win or to lose, and losing is not an option. So get out there and crush the day each and every day and again. As always, this is The Lowdown with Kevin Lowe, and remember, this life, it's worth living, so get out and live it. And that's The Lowdown with Kevin Lowe. I hope today's episode inspired you, motivated you, and excited you to get out and enjoy life, no matter what obstacles may be standing in the way.